You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff, who has to get on the phone in two minutes, so this is going to be very quick. Get hey. on the horn. Talk fast. Let's talk fast. Aaron, who'd you talk to this week? Uh, I got to talk to Joshua Topolsky uh, from The Verge. Um, he's an interesting guy, like, really made the jump from doing gadget bloggy stuff into doing The Verge, which I think is one of the uh, premier uh tech, et cetera, um, feature writing sites on the web right now. Yeah, the et cetera is these long, beautiful features they've been yeah, doing. Yeah, we talked a lot about that. We talked about how they make them, why they make them, and what they do for them. Um, and I think we have a sponsor this week. Is that correct? Is that true? Is that true? I do believe we do. It's Tiny Letter uh, from the good people at MailChimp, a simple yet riotously powerful way to send an email newsletter. Um, and uh, take it away, me. <laughs> Hello, I'm here with Joshua Topolsky uh, of The Verge. Thank you for coming in. Thank, uh, thank you for having me. We're, we're having a rare uh, noon taping, so we've, uh, we're in a little bit more morning mode. Usually when do you, we go when do you little, usually? We usually are like a 6 p.m. kind of whiskey taping, oh, and yeah. I feel like this is, like is going to be a, a coffee, a coffee uh, that's podcast. What, that's what we do. We're an we're, uh, uh, evening drinking. Well, it can get a little noisy in here uh, during the day, although right. I've... I've um, thoroughly browbeaten everyone so expect no no problems they today very, they seem very well behaved um why don't you sort of for people who haven't read the verge give me like a sort of a quick rundown of well, what do you see the verge as as a publication how do you tell people when you're at a uh, thanksgiving dinner how do you tell people wh- about what you do we say uh, this is on our about page we're a news uh publication that, that covers the intersection of technology science art and culture uh you know i think we start our roots are tech yeah. A lot of us came from Engadget and other uh, tech sites. Yes. And uh, our goal has been with The Verge to keep expanding outward from that. You know, the, the thing that we think is that uh, technology is is becoming very – it is mainstream, you know, the, yes. the idea of technology in our lives. And so we want to try to find a way to, to tell that story and the stories that are – uh, kind of sparking off of it mm-hmm. in a big way. So this is a roundabout. This would not be the Thanksgiving way I tell people. Yeah. But we, we cover technology, art, science, and culture, and all how, the way all those things intersect. Uh, and and uh, yeah, we're like we're a hybrid. We're a kind of hybrid, new, old right. publication. Well, that I mean, and that's become an interesting thing. You know, we produce an app, and 
uh, you can you can follow publications in it. And originally, I had the language magazine in there, and then uh, became like a source. And we haven't really derived a great word to talk about whatever yeah. The Verge is. It's yeah. not quite a magazine. It's definitely not a blog, in my opinion. Right. That's We actually say it's not a blog. I mean, if somebody says, hey, cool blog, we say, well, it's not a blog. It's, you know, if anything, you want to call it a news site or... Uh, there isn't a word, though. Well, and part of what I would draw as the distinction between those is that you're creating work of enduring value beyond, say, the day it comes out. Um, and a lot of that, uh, and one of the reasons I was very interested in having you on the podcast, is that you're uh, rare among tech sites and that you produce long features, yeah. um, which are things that I can certainly imagine being read for years to come and in certain ways being sort of, um, uh, you know, um, places along the path of technology. I mean, we pull up a lot of archival stories here and stories like uh, Space War, like um, the Kevin Kelly story about mm -hmm. the first video game. Those actually are, are sort of part of the history of technology, those pieces of reporting. Yeah. And it seems to me like The Verge has decided uh, pretty clearly to invest in that kind of reporting. Mm -hmm. What? How did you... How did you sell that at first? Was that something that came with the job or is it something that you decided you wanted to pursue? Well, I mean, when we started talking about what The Verge would be, I think everybody had, you know, everybody who was there to start mm -hmm. uh, had been doing, had been blogging. Yeah. And we knew what that was like and we had a pretty good way of, of doing it and a pretty good sense of what it would be like to do it. Uh, and I think that when we started, when we, when we began playing The Verge, you know, the first thing was that we could do whatever we wanted, right? So it was like clean slate. Let's think of the things that we and most... And when, when you say that, that's a, a genuine offer to do whatever you wanted. It wasn't like, do whatever you want, but we need 4 million people and this advertising no, I mean, demographic. It was, it, I, no, actually what it was is that we, we sat down and said, here's what we can do. And we think we're able to do uh, uh, the news stuff and we're able to do, you know, if we want to do review stuff, we're able to do that and, and do this other new stuff that we haven't done yet or that we haven't seen a lot of people doing and, and that it'll all, that conceivably it'll work yes. when, when we launch the site. Uh, but, but I think the thinking was there had been very little experimentation in blogging. There had been very little, uh, Attempt, there had been a, a very, very few people had attempted to do more than just uh, the single column. Yes. You know, you've got a blog over here. You've got some stuff on the right rail. The river. Just, the, yeah, right. And that's just it. Yeah. And so going into The Verge, I mean, I'm like a kind of a design nerd and, I, and I'm a big, big magazine nerd. Like, I really, really love magazines and I've read them since I was a kid. Well, let's, you know, let's come back to that. We too. will get I back want, to that. I want but, to talk about that. But so I wanted to bring some of the magazine sensibility and some of the newspaper sensibility. I thought that there are, you know, the idea that, that somehow blogging had to exist uh, apart from newspapers or magazines, which yep. which gave birth to the concept of you know really of a, of a blog at all, that they had to be divorced in some way. I, we thought was was flawed. I thought was definitely flawed. And so we were like, let's see if we can. Can we do this? Could we do something more than uh, because we wanted to chase bigger stories. We wanted to tell more in depth stories, and we wanted to tell them in a different way than you'd seen on the web. Uh, which I don't know. I mean, I guess doesn't sound now that a lot of people have started doing this. It sounds yep. a little less. Weird, but at the time when we were talking about it, which how was, long ago is this? What, what, I mean, I my time? my last day at Engadget was April first, two thousand eleven. But uh, you know, some of these ideas we I just been thinking about, we've been talking about for years, but you couldn't execute them in, in, on an old CMS. Yes, at, 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 you know, with in a in a place where you didn't have the budget or the freedom or. The, the people behind you to say, like, we're going to let you do this because we think it's a good idea. I'm rambling now. but No, no, no. Well, I'm interested. What what were your sort of models for that? I mean, uh, clearly there was a technical hurdle, but um, yeah. you said that you that you were a fan of magazines. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in what kind of stuff you saw. You said, yes, I want I want to build a new publication that sort of takes the 
draws from this. Well, my so my all time favorite magazine is The Face, and to me, like that was the kind of the the deeper inspiration for the for the features because they used to do amazing story layouts in the face. You know, and of course, when I was growing up, I read Ray Gun, and you know, I've sort of grew up on magazines that were that were very design heavy, yeah. and and pushed what I think even in the magazine space pushed the boundaries of what layout could be like or what yep. design could be like in a magazine. So those were the things, and Wired, of course. I mean, sure. I grew up on Wired. You know, I had issue two to, you know, whenever, I don't remember, 100. Yeah. 100. Well, uh, I always noticed that, that Wired has the best sort of archival design for the yeah. spines. Also, when you see a, like a collection of Wired oh, yeah. on someone's shelf, you know immediately what magazine's yeah. on their shelf. But also Wired used to do this stuff early in the early days where they would start with, I don't know if you remember, these big layouts of just just a weird graphics spread yes. for the first couple of pages. Yes. And it was, you know, stuff like that. I thought if we could bring some of that sensibility. And, you know, there were also people online doing things I thought were really interesting. Jason Santa Maria, the designer, had been... had been Got uh, an office right down the block. See, oh, does yeah, it? Yeah, okay. Yeah. He had been... Uh, publishing stories on his personal blog that had been yep. that had different layouts yeah and i thought that was really inspiring yeah and it wasn't it wasn't something that a lot of people saw because you yeah. had to people kind of, who who haven't seen this should check it out it's i believe it's on it's still on his personal website each i think each like feature has a completely from scratch yeah. design yeah, yeah. and yeah. it was and it's you know clearly uh for him it probably wasn't as difficult to envision because you know he's he does that stuff natively right. right you know for me it was like this is amazing nobody on the web does this yeah and if there was some way you could uh do this uh, at scale. Yes. You know, or give people the tools to do something like this. That would be really amazing. Well, so. And it strikes me that a lot of people have had this idea of doing sort of this richer kind of storytelling on the web and that a, a lot of times it doesn't take sort of usability and the user experience fully in mind and it becomes like very difficult to navigate through yeah. a story. And um, for people who haven't seen these Verge features, I'd say, which where would you start? It's, the first one I read was Scam World, which I think yeah. was, your, was the first one that came out. No, uh, uh, the first one we did was in the first week of publication. It was, okay. called, it was called Condo at the End of the World. Okay, I don't uh, remember that. Which you should see it. It's yeah. great. I mean, it, I think it. I you know. I think one of these one of the things is we've been developing. We've been learning how better to use these tools, so they've yes. gotten better and better. Yeah, uh, but. Uh, we, you know, this was a plan from day one, and so mm-hmm. we had prepared this for this first feature, and it had this like micro documentary that went along with it. Yeah, uh, and it's about people who it, basically survivalists who are building luxury condos in missile silos, you know, in preparation oh, okay. for yes, the apocalypse. Yes, yes, uh, yes. But um, well, so well, I, mean, I was going to say that check that one out. There's also the most recent one is uh, for amusement only, the arcade story. Yeah, Death yeah. of the Arcade. We Death just of did, Arcade and. Uh, and I, you know, I, it's almost like this is something you can't really describe. You can't really describe how these look, but they're they have a very distinctive look and feel um, that I I would think probably until HTML five really came to blossom here, some of the stuff that's in those stories would have been almost impossible. Yeah, the to parallax do. scrolling, uh, which we'd done on a, a piece uh, earlier, um, we'd been experimenting with a little bit. Yep. Uh, with something, it's HTML five. I'm pretty sure there, you know, I, that wouldn't have been possible a couple of years ago just because people hadn't we hadn't really honed the techniques of, of HTML5. But uh, one of the things I'll say about these yeah. that's important uh, in our features is that I think that the scroll down is the page turn of the internet. I agree. And I think that... Possibly the iPad, too, in and my I, opinion. And I think that... Yeah, I mean, well, I think, you know, there is a natural inclination to flip on an iPad. I think yep. it's because a lot of apps do flip. Yes. But I think that uh, particularly when you're sitting at a computer, laptop, desktop, whatever, um, the... Anything besides scrolling down a page does not feel natural. And maybe that's just because it's a learned habit or maybe because it is really natural. But I, we built our features around the concept that you're not, you know, we don't paginate. Right. Uh, the idea is 
you're going to scroll down the page. We want the feature to unfold as you scroll down. Uh, and, and in fact, if you look at, we just did a feature. In fact, we did something more recently than Death of the Arcade. We did a feature on uh, the boom in sort of indie space travel or these startups that are trying to do space travel. And as you scroll down the page, there's a star field on the sides of it. And as you scroll down, it gets darker and darker. Mm-hmm. You know, it sort of fades to space. Yes. And that's something that I think, you know, yes, it's a nice little novelty feature of it, but it also, I, I feel like, allows us to create like a visual context around the story that you couldn't do without the scroll and without thinking of the story as a continuous uh, narrative that ends up somewhere. It starts somewhere and ends up somewhere. Let's so. talk about that from the flip side because yeah. I don't think that there's a lot of magazine editors who, who, who would come in here and say, oh, I love pagination. I really, I believe in pagination. It's, it's awesome. Yeah. What generally you would hear is, look, I have to hit this, these targets um, we don't have a choice but to paginate. Right. Is this something you had, did you have to sell not paginating? I mean, has there been a calculation of how much money you would make if you did paginate so, so, these stories? So, so when we, so when I left Engadget, my goal was to, uh, and this was with the editors that, that, you know, who I, we've been talking about doing something. We, I think the general goal was, and certainly my goal was to find a place where the people who would invest in this, mm-hmm. uh, and by the way, we're, you know, that the staff is, we own shares of Vox Media, and, and I have a percentage ownership of the company. So I, I'm, an, I'm an owner in this case. Vox Media, for, for people listening, also SB Nation, now Polygon, Polygon yeah. um, started by Marcos. I will not yeah, try to pronounce Coase, his last started name. By, I just say Coase. I, don't, I get out of it. Uh, and, who does Daily, Daily Chaos and has existed four or five years, Vox? Uh, well, SB Nation was around for since 2005, 2005 I believe. Okay, so seven or eight years. Yeah, so, yeah. or 2006. Yeah. I might be misquoting. Yeah. Uh, you were misquoting. Me. I don't yeah. know what's happening, but um, <laughs> but uh, but anyhow, they've been they were around for a while, but they were just the sports site. They were a yes. network of sports blogs. They were kind of fan run sports blogs. Yeah, uh, some of them very popular. Yep, uh, and which is by the way a weird was a weird fit. But when when we went in and I, we talked to uh, uh, the CEO Jim Bankoff, who had yep. been at AOL previously, he's actually the guy who brought weblogs to AOL, which is what Engadget was part of. Uh, and but he understood. I mean, the whole point was I didn't want to do this with with somebody who didn't understand that this was going to be different and was going to be experience. Some of it was going to be experimental, and some of it might not work. Yeah. And then a lot of it was gut check. You know, we were kind of going, we believe in this and we think it'll be cool. But what I'll say is, for us to make this successful, it wasn't about uh, necessarily about page views. It was about could could would you know we were ad supported. Yes. It was could we make this really beautiful? Could we tell these really beautiful stories? Yes. And important stories, I think. And will advertisers be attracted to that? Mm-hmm. And it turns out they are attracted to it. And we've we've done exceedingly well in terms of ad support. Yeah. Um, but in terms of our in, in viewership, I mean, we blew away what I thought we were going to do. And just so you know, when we launched, I was scared that people would hate it. I mean, I really, really thought because the design of the front page is really different, and people still you know give me shit about it. Yes. Am I allowed to swear on your podcast? Oh, it's okay. Encouraged. Good. There's a core reader that that still wants a blog view. Yeah. And uh, which I understand, you know, but we're trying to do something different. And there are people who who you know say, oh, the features are really heavy in my browser. You know, there's yeah. sort of so so it was a, a very much a kind of gamble that that people would. And I thought I was scared. Yeah. Uh, day one, that all of these guesses that we made and all of these things we assumed would be good or people would like would would be wrong yeah but but part of the doing this was that it needed we needed to have a partner somebody who would invest monetarily and intellectually in the concept of 
this is going to be different. We're not going to like it's not we're not gaming pages. It's not a right. game for us. It's not something we want to do. If our business is built on slideshows, yep, then it's a bad business. I think that brings me sort of an interesting question because. Uh, you know, I primarily read your features. That's what I that's what yeah. I go to The Verge for. That's what I know you for. But if anyone who is now sort of surfing to The Verge's homepage, you're going to see reviews of phones. Yeah. You're going to see, um, you know, bloggier content, yeah. you know, coming soon kind of stuff. We're, doing, we're also doing a lot more in-depth. We actually have hired a bunch of reporters. We just brought on a new reporter, Greg Sandoval, from who was who left CNET. Right, uh, angrily, but but so we're actually doing a lot more of the middle stuff, the, the in between. Yeah, stuff. we actually call. By the way, yeah. Sorry, I know you were getting to a point, but I'm just yeah, gonna, no, no, I'm no. Gonna, go I'm going to interrupt just you roll, anyhow. Just roll. We actually call certain sections. You know, we think of them as it's like newswire, newspaper, magazine. Oh, you no, know, there's okay. stuff that's at, at different levels. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of the breaking news or the more you know, we're reblogging somebody's story or or or. or you know, just kind of linking out to something. That's sort of the the news wire. Then we have the newspaper, which is the reporting, the yeah. more in-depth stuff, and the, re- the reviews fall in there a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then the magazine, which is the longer form. Well, that, that gives me a good way to directly do this without using the word feature or long form for the 19th time this podcast. Yeah. How do you see that magazine content and how much of your how much of your resources do you dedicate to it and what role is it supposed to play in the sort of overall um, – appeal of the verge uh i think that you know the news is very important to us the review stuff is very important to us but in terms of where we're going and the stories we want to tell and how important and big we think they are the features represents the feature stories rather represent that in its most pure perfect form or getting perfect not perfect and how do you measure that in terms of sort of metrics what measurement is first off they do they do very well Mm -hmm. some of our some of our features are our highest traffic stories throughout the site ever in, in the history of the site uh but one of the things that we don't do, and one of the things that I'm really, I really try to avoid, is judging things by necessarily how many viewers you see on them or how many uniques that particular post gets. Um, uh, we do, we obviously look, but I think I guess judging our content on on whether it's succeeding or not. You know, I think that sometimes you tell stories that people don't know they need to read yet, mm-hmm. and so you have to keep telling those kinds of stories and people will will wake up to them so so uh you know of course we look at traffic but the main thing is are we doing good work the main thing is do we at the end of the week or the end of the day do i think that was awesome i'm really glad we wrote that because we have we have a business that supports we are able to spend money and time and energy on doing features because we have other parts of the business that are that are you know tried and tested and 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 you know, get a certain amount of traffic every day. So it's a nice balance. Well, it's interesting because, you know, there's a lot of sort of back and forth um, about whether long form stuff is dying or it's on the, you know, resurging and and people will ask me, I don't think resurging is a word, but people will ask me about that and they'll say, well, do you have any sort of statistics about this? How, how, and I, and I, I don't, and, and it's sort of anecdotal, but when I look at sites like the verge or Buzzfeed hiring a long form editor, I think these are people who know metrics and they know web traffic yeah. and they're pouring money into this and they know web advertising. There has to be some sort of payoff to that. They're yeah. not doing this blindly on good faith and they're certainly not doing this to save the art form. Yeah. They're doing it because well, there is some tangible benefit to the publication they put out to doing longer features. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll say this. Yeah. Uh, what you know? What you said is that you believe, or that you sort of it's anecdotal that yeah. you think that there's an audience of that it's yep. you know whatever it is is happening with long form right now. Yes, I mean in terms of the writing, 
we're very much the same way in the sense that, especially going into it, now we know mm-hmm. that it works. But but going into it, it was kind of like, well, we believe this thing can, there's an audience for it. Right. And that people want it and they're just not getting it. And I think what really is happening is if magazines are, it's not that people don't want content from magazines. Mm-hmm. It's just that people's habits have changed, right? Magazines have historically, magazines and newspapers have historically done long form stories and they've been you know this is this is a thing that people want i mean clearly people want it you know how long have people been reading long form content definitely over a century a very long time right so it's not that people don't want it's just that it's it they've changed where they read and so i think the thing that was missing was or has been missing is now starting to come uh, back is or not even come back it's starting to be there for the first time is that it's where they are yeah, and that it speaks to them. It's for that audience, for the audience of now, not the audience of ten years ago or twenty years ago. I mean, magazines are still shaking off what they perceive as their audience and where their audience lives. Like they don't, they don't know, and that's one of the problems. That's why there, it's been a slow moving. It's been a slow moving change for a magazine to understand that their audience is now reading on the internet, um, and that their audience is a different one than they had. 10 years ago. So I think that part of it is just that people have to make it. And not if you build it, they will come thing. But I think that people are there. There was this there was this belief. I just had another conversation with somebody about this. There was this belief a couple of years ago that fast and cheap and dirty was the way to do it and that content farms were going to be the thing. You know, it was going to be all Huffington Post and demand media was going to be yeah. the only thing that existed. But, you know, the idea was that that this was the future and at some point, robots would be writing our news, and it would just be this cheap reprocess. And there is plenty of that. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But I think that there is going to, there is always going to be a reader that wants something more than that, and that if we give them something, and that if a bunch of people give them something, that they will, they'll eat it up. And they have. I think they really have. For us, that's been a hundred percent true, a thousand percent true. You're a nerdy guy yes. who publishes, yes. so I'm guessing that there are less nerdy guys who run magazines who ask you what they should be doing in terms of the digital presentation of stories. Where where do apps play into your strategy with this stuff? How do you feel about sort of the divide between the web and the app? And for a publisher, it's putting out daily content, but it's also putting out something that's more like a magazine like Wired that comes out every yeah. month. How do you how do you sort of map your your web array into a into something that that works on, on a tablet or a phone? So there's information you want to give people in a certain way that works in a certain environment, and it won't work in another way. Uh, but for us, so just speaking for The Verge, mm-hmm. uh, you know, our goal is how can, we, how can we tell these stories everywhere that we want to, you know, we know people have phones, people have tablets, people are in front of their laptops or desktops. Those are all places they'll read The Verge. What's the best way to do that? Is there any one single way, any one single best way? I don't think there is. I think if they want to read it in Flipboard and if we can make Flipboard look beautiful and make sense for us, then that's great. If they want to read it in Pocket and Pocket makes sense because it's a 5,000-word story and you want to ride the train and read it in a very uncluttered, simplified manner, I think that's great. Can we make an app that does what our website is supposed to do? Uh, but is formatted for a phone or tablet, I think we can. Would we be better served by trying to do something adaptive? Possibly. That's something we're experimenting with. So, you know, for us, could we do a monthly that's a roundup of our features for the month that's published as as an iPad magazine or even as a physical magazine? Those are all things I think would be completely reasonable and possible and and we've talked about and thought about. 
uh, and Mike. You, you heard it here first. The Verge is doing a physical magazine. Well, we actually, <laughs> actually, we we've we have we have talked about and very seriously put thought into doing like a quarterly. Yeah. Uh, which is not out of the realm Grant of possibility. Does that, right? Yeah, Grantland right. does it, and it's great. Yeah. And uh, and we're, I mean, you, you know, for instance, I mean, it's just so you know, like everybody there is kind of. Uh, uh, no one at the verge is I won't I don't I hate physical media. There's no right. there's no this like there's no divide. Yep. You know, we're not all digital and screw physical. I mean, my wife and I and Laura June, who wrote the arcade piece and is also an editor, uh you know, we're we're book nerds. And yep. I'm you know, mag you know, I get we get twenty subscriptions to magazines and so we're reading all that stuff and we love all that stuff and and, and the team is the same way. And so so yeah, I mean, we've talked about doing a quarterly or uh, you know a monthly or some form of a physical. You know, I I would love to do that. That may be something we do. But I think that for for magazines, I think for magazines that exist, and I'm just gonna yeah. you know if, if I'm giving advice to magazines. Yeah, no, I think that for for someone who's not publishing a tech. I mean, magazine. I find I find iPad magazines to be odd. Me too. I mean, I think that they're. I think that that. I think that to get something on the iPad that is old seems weird to me, unless it's a book. A book I get. It's a book. Yes. Um, to get a magazine, to get an issue of Wired on the iPad. I mean, I get it. I'd rather have the physical issue of Wired. The interactive stuff does nothing for me, really. Um, that's not how I want to read Wired. And and particularly their features, you know, it's not, it's not, if it's a magazine feature, the translation to digital seems a little weird to me. It's not just Wired, a lot of magazines. I mean, I'm just using them as examples. Well, the issue bundle have. is another, like, weird thing. It's a little bit weird yeah. that it's... You're not looking at sort of the river that we've talked about. Right. Instead, you're looking at these weird, like, oh, this is three weeks ago, and it's, it's a P- and it's like a PDF or it's some format that doesn't feel native. Yeah, and it's and it's, you know, there's no. I mean, I, this sounds stupid, but there's no commenting, there's no share. It doesn't feel. It feels disconnected. This is the problem with the daily. You know, I thought the daily was an interesting idea, but somehow it, it managed to feel super disconnected from what we were doing day to day. Yes, and maybe it's just because I'm a news guy, but I don't think so, or else it would have been more successful. I believe. It just felt there are no comments. There's really no good way to share. You can't go read it on the web. There's no conversation around it. And, you know, that's something for us, the social aspect of it. Um, you know, you can talk about social graphs and Facebook success or whatever. But at the end of the day, for us, some a lot of our success comes through the idea that people are sharing these things and they're abstracted from their source. That people are saying, this is something that I saw that I think is interesting and I want to share it with people that I know. So to remove that or to make it more difficult or to make something feel more disconnected, I think, is detrimental to the audience as it is now. You have a pretty extensive ethics statement. I think it's about a 10-point ethics platform on the site. Uh, Can you tell me about why ethics are so important to The Verge? So, okay. But a phone review may seem light, but it's not. Yes. And and certainly the other stories we write, excuse me, stuff like Condo or the Adderall piece, they're not light at all. And so it's important that we establish from the outset that look, there's we believe in this stuff as journalism. This is important to us. To uh, there need to there needs to be an ethical way of doing journalism, and people need to understand there shouldn't be any questions. Nobody should ever have to ask, "What do you, do you guys? How do you do this? Or why are you doing it like this? Or will you take money or presents or whatever from yep. somebody that you cover? You know, because that's a danger if you're covering any kind of physical object. But it's also a danger if you're covering anything. You know, favors exist and <clears throat> certainly money exists. So uh, I think so for just uh, like this is a roundabout way of saying it, but to have a set of ethics that you work with uh, is incredibly important. And, and anybody from any major publication, New York Times, and by the yep. way, our 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 uh, ethics statement is largely based on 
the New York Times ethics statement. Okay, you know? so you're not going out on a limb here. I don't think, I mean, some of the stuff, you know, for our industry is yep. specific. You know, I will say uh, Peter Rojas, who started Engadget, had a set of ethics that were very clear. And I thought it was one of the most brilliant things that he did was he said, this is what we will and won't do. Here's what we, you know, we won't go and take dinners from people. We won't go to, you know, eat the buffet at a, if you go to a trade show. Sort of just basic stuff that seems you think might not be a big deal, but I think at the end of the day, it communicates something very clear to the reader and, and to our team to know that there are boundaries. I mean, it doesn't stop people from accusing us of, <laughs> of bias or, yes. you know, whatever it is. But, um, you know, and, and look, it's a, it's a tightrope. I mean, honestly, working with these companies, I mean, particularly on the, on the hardware side or on the software side or the, you know, the gadgety, the more gadgety stuff, I think the, the electronics industry just forget about all the other stuff we do. On that side, I think they're coming from a world of a very different relationship with uh, magazine people. From, you know, 20, 30 years ago, their relationships were just very different than, so they, are, than they are now. So some unusual precedents were set in I the think past so. with that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I just think there were different, cozier relationships when it was a smaller industry. And now that it's a very large industry, um, those relationships have to be less cozy. Well, I mean, it was interesting. I spoke to, to Charles Duhigg here from the New York Times throughout the, the I Economy series. Oh, yeah. And it's interesting how um, technology is reported very differently as a business than, say, a consumer review. There, there, I mean, right. there's not a lot of overlap. It's almost like there's different kinds of technology reporters. And it's uh, it's easy to go on the web and look at the sort of spectrum of tech reporting and, and feel like everything is either sort of a gadget review or it's a startup a modified press release right. and there's a certain soul soullessness that goes along yeah. with those. But we were just talking about, I don't think anyone can deny that putting a smartphone in someone's pocket, uh, changes culture. How do you seek that, that bigger story? How do you find the stories that aren't gadget reviews and aren't new startups in San Francisco? Where are those? Stories? Well, one, of, one of the things, I mean, on the startup piece, the first thing is just conversations about this stuff. Is does this make sense? Is it good? Is it is it valuable? Do we want to do we want to um, report on this? But the the thing is that the the PR the pitch is never really the story. You know, it's very often not the story. And to be able to see beyond that, it's always well, this is okay. This thing exists. Why is it interesting? Or are the people who made it interesting? And so increasingly, what we try to do is you know, with every story that comes across our desk, it, it's okay. This thing exists, but what is the actual story, and how do you how do you figure that out? And that's that's basically conversation. That's the that is the editorial uh, conversation that happens nonstop at the Verge, which is what is the story, what is the angle, why why would this be interesting, why is this useful to know, um, you know, and 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 I think that for us very much uh, we've moved away from uh, what we I think at 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 Engadget um, a lot of it was kind of hey, there's a new product, here's the price, here's the release date, um, here's why you should care. But it was sort of, it was wrapped up in, in telling people that there's something coming and there was not a lot of con additional context. Mm. I think for us, we've, we've one of the things about The Verge is we wanted to move away from that. Actually, I think a great example of this is if you look at our CES coverage this year. Um, we did half as many stories um, as we did the previous year because we're trying to shake off some of these bad habits. If you look at the competition, a lot of it looks like just PR. Um, we we try to tell stories and find stories there that were interesting, whether it was a trend or something funny or something weird. And so um, a lot of it is just using, just saying, just editing, just literally saying, 
I'm not going to cover this because it's not it's not valuable to a reader. Do you um, fact check extensively on these pieces? Uh, we do on the big pieces. We do we do fact checking. Um, uh, you know, we put a lot of trust in our writers and reporters. Yep. I mean, on the for some of the bigger stories that we do, you know, when it's a lot of sources over a long period of time, we do fact checking on them. I so mean, I'd like to do more. I think I think fact checking is. Uh, it's you know look the New Yorker is has the perfected fact checking they've yeah. got a I, I presume a team of fact checkers um, if if our budget permits we'll have a team of fact checkers in the, in the near future. Well, how do you I mean how do you balance sort of the cost benefit ratio of something like like a lot of places online just don't fact check because like we don't have enough money to fact right. check it's not even a choice. Right. As you become you're becoming a publication that resembles a Wired or a New Yorker more than it resembles. A humble tech blog, you yeah. know, a, a humble gadget review blog. How do you sort of draw the line about the costs of something like fact checking? I mean, I think that when there's a vault, when it's a volatile piece, and you know that the stakes are relatively high, and that somebody's reputation could be on the line, I think there's no question that the that the value is there. Yeah, I mean, you have to, you have to. There's got to be due diligence on that. The other thing is, you know, for us, is there's a lot because we're having these conversations, these amongst multiple members of our team there's a lot of in, there's a lot of fact checking that happens before you even get to the finished piece you want there to be bottlenecks essentially you want there to be bottlenecks and you want there to be places where somebody's looking at it and saying wait a second is this right or more than one person is saying that and that's what we do so it helps that we can get further into the into the piece in every step of the way we're we're kind of having those conversations um but you know, I think that there's places where the benefit is obvious and places where obviously it seems like it's less. Well, I mean, there's things we know when we know we know. Uh, and then there's stuff where you're like, you've got to you've got to double check on this. And I think those are relatively obvious for us right now. But the more we do pieces like this, the more fact checking is is a part of is a part of our process. So uh, and that is it is true. I mean, it, it you don't. I mean, one of the problems with, with journalism online is that uh, it's not just a lack of fact-checking from a professional fact-checker. It's a lack of uh, follow-up or even clarity in, in, in what the story is. But, you know, CNN does the same thing. Sure. I mean, I, I couldn't tell you how many times I've seen CNN conflate a story and get facts completely wrong. When, sure. You know, yeah. and, and, it's, and it's, you know— it's kind of shocking. Maybe they're moving more at a blog pace now than they than they used to. But I think it's a problem throughout for, for sites like ours and for more established sites. You've talked a lot about sort of the, the larger role that technology plays in culture and how you can sort of tell that story on the verge. Um, at the same time, you're still publishing daily reviews of phones and tablets what is your hope for for what you can give someone who say comes to the verge looking for a review of a new tablet uh, say comes for the new nexus tablet my hope is that the person who's looking for the nexus review goes to the verge and they find they find pieces of of a uh, a story that are connected though not necessarily the same thing and that that story is interesting to them and that they that they want to explore it and if that happens even once, uh, I'll feel I'll feel very good about, and I do feel very good about what we've done because that's that's kind of the kind of the goal is is um, to crack open this weird, fascinating, bizarre world 
that we live in that technology is a part of and is is affecting and and just um show that show that it's all connected And that was the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. Thanks very much to Joshua Topolsky for coming in. Our editor is Lauren Kirchner. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. We were sponsored today by Tiny Letter from MailChimp. Uh, We'll see you right back here next week. run why does anyone i always thought that runners loved running and that's not the case most runners hate running (laughs) but they choose to do it in the new docuseries running sucks brought to you by team milk abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance it really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong team milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.